Welcome to Act in Line, the podcast of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Caroline Roberts, producer and host. This week, Bradley Berzer, who's a professor at Hillsdale College, joins me to talk about his newest book titled Beyond Tenebrae, Christian Humanism in the Twilight of the West. What is Christian humanism and what role did it play in the Republic of Letters? What does it look like to live as a Christian humanist? On this episode, Bradley helps lay down some of the foundational ideas in his book, but we really just scratched the surface of this topic, so I encourage you to check out the book and more essays by Brad on this topic. And I've linked a few for you in the show notes for this episode, and you can find those at blog.acton.org. If you enjoy this show, help us gain even more listeners and share it with a friend or leave a like or comment wherever you're listening. Today, I'm joined by Bradley Berzer. He's a professor of history and the Russell Amos Kirk Chair in American Studies at Hillsdale College. Brad, it is always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for coming on again. Oh, thank you, Carolyn. I always enjoy talking to you very much, as I, as I assume is obvious. So, <laughs> thank you. Brad, your latest book is titled Beyond Tenebrae, Christian Humanism in the Twilight of the West. Uh, so this topic of Christian humanism is really such a big one, and I feel like there's there's no way to really do justice to this topic in one podcast episode, but we'll try our best to lay a foundation here and touch on some of the most important points in your book. So first, what is Christian humanism? What does this term mean? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. And of course, it, it's so fraught with meaning and I think division for a lot of people, especially, and this is just as true in Catholicism as it is in Protestantism. But quite often when the word humanism comes up, people automatically think atheism or they think secularism or something that's anti-God. And that's a travesty because the word humanism traditionally had meant just trying to understand the human person. And so we have to modify it now with Christian to make it Christian humanism so that people recognize it's not that kind of atheistic or secular humanism. But, you know, the easiest way to describe it, Carolyn, is basically just to say uh, someone who is a Christian humanist believes both in Christianity and in humanism, that is, believes in the humanities, the liberal arts. And that's not a full definition because there are going to be all kinds of implications that flow from that, uh, really all kinds of ideas, thinking about the incarnation and so forth. But that really is the simplest way. It's basically someone who believes in the liberal arts and someone who believes in the Christian understanding of theology. So like you said at the beginning of your answer there, you say that, you know, so often when we hear the word humanism, we, we think of it in its um, secular sense. That's how we've come sure. to understand it. Um, you even write in your book, you say when you mention humanism among, among conservatives, um, you say that you're almost always greeted with silence, head shaking, or actual visible disgust. And then you say almost all conservatives, it seems, associate humanism with secularism and atheism and radicalism. So... My question for you is how do we come to understand the word in this way? Because you do say that humanism in its secular sense and the way that it's understood now among so many people is incorrect. So why is that incorrect? You know, it was one of those words that was kind of a catch-all word by the 1890s. And so it had become this thing 
humanism essentially in the way that we might say democracy. They're a democratic people, and we mean that, you know, not with the without the nuances. We just mean if they've become democratic, obviously they've reached a kind of high point of civilization. We mean it as a good thing. Humanism had become that kind of word by the end of the 19th century. So to say someone was a humanist really meant they had kind of reached the pinnacle of civilization. And there were a couple of really important thinkers at the time. In fact, they're in many ways to try and put them in perspective. They're beyond our understanding because they were so much a part of the culture in every way and ways that we can't really quite imagine in 2020. But around 1910, 1920, there were two guys, one named Irving Babbitt, another named Paul Elmer Moore. Babbitt was a professor at Harvard. Moore was a professor at Princeton University who became really associated with the term humanism and in, in its best sense. And there was actually an attempt in 1929, much against the ideas of Babbitt and Moore, to take the idea and to make it a religion. Uh, there was a, an actual humanist church that started in New York City in 1929, it very specifically taking the idea from Babbitt and Moore, even though they rejected the notion of it being a religion. And that morphed into what we now call the American Humanist Association. And so the word by about 1933 had really become associated with secularism. So that for, for almost ever, the word had meant something good. And then in 1933, it really was hijacked by the forces of secularism to mean what they had meant. So you get a lot of people in the 1920s and 30s who still will use the term humanism in its proper sense, but there's no doubt it's a word that, that takes on all kinds of meaning that it had never had before. So it's a loaded term, and there's no doubt, Carolyn, when I use it now, it, it, is, it is fraught with those, those, that, that baggage. There's no question about that. Yeah, that's interesting. So did your understanding of the word humanism, um, did it change? Did you, did you always understand it in its you know, correct context? When did understanding this word humanism um, within its longer you know, tradition of the meaning of the sure. word, when did Christian humanism mean something to you? Yeah, so I didn't know it at the time. I went to, to Notre Dame for my undergrad, and I didn't realize that several of my professors there regarded themselves as Christian humanists. Uh, that, that was just not something that I was cognizant of when I was in college. And it really wasn't until I was in my late 20s, and I actually met, met someone who now is very prominent in Grand, Rap uh, Grand Rapids. I met Gleaves Whitney, who runs the Howenstein Center over at Grand Valley State. And he gave a lecture. This would have been, um, actually, I would have been right about 30, 31. So not my late 20s, but very early 30s. It would have been the late 90s. And I met him at a conference in, in Houston. And he gave a lecture on the definition and meaning of Christian humanism. And I realized that so much of what I had been thinking about, in large part from people like Father Sirico, uh, and from reading J.R.R. Tolkien, from reading a whole uh, T.S. Eliot, a whole group of people, I realized this, this was the umbrella term that really held them together. And I think in some ways better than the term conservative or libertarian. And so I got really taken with that through Gleaves. And there were other people I met as well. Uh, at this same conference, I met Winston Elliott, who run, ran the program we were at, who now runs what's called the Free Enterprise Institute in Houston. I met Ben Lockard, who's a professor, a Dante scholar, and an Elliott scholar at Grand Valley State. So a lot of people, Joseph Pierce, 
uh, I met a number of people all at this same conference, and it, it just opened up things for me. So I came back to Hillsdale right after that, started talking to some of my colleagues, realized that this was a term that had been around for a long time, but I, I just had not known. And so got you know, with that enthusiasm of youth, <laughs> I wish I wish I still had that, Carolyn. I wish I still had quite that enthusiasm. I don't think it's totally gone, but it's not <laughs> what it was when I was 31. Um, you know, that just I, I dove into it. And I was at that point in my career where I was still trying to make a name for myself at Hillsdale and elsewhere. And it became that kind of thing. It was like, yes, I'm a Christian humanist. This makes sense. And I want to explore it. And I realized that Christian humanism is not really left-wing, it's not really right-wing, it kind of transcends narrow political categorization. You know, if you push me, Carolyn, I would say I'm a libertarian, but I definitely prefer Christian humanism to all those other labels. Well, let's talk about that a little bit more, because you do say, you do write in your book, that when you were listening to um, Gleaves Whitney speak about what Christian humanism meant to him, um, you write that, quote, this explanation of Christian humanism that you heard in 1999 finally made you realize that the real problems of earthly and human existence are not left and right, but man and anti-man, Christ and anti-Christ. You say that is the real conflict, or that is the real conflict is transcendent, not horizontal. Can you tease that out a little bit more for us in this tradition of Christian humanism? What does this all mean? Yeah, so I, I would relate it to the title of the book, right? This idea of beyond tenebrae. So tenebrae is a Catholic celebration. And I, I, there may be other Christian denominations who use it. I'm not familiar with others using it. But in the Catholic Church, tenebrae, and it, it's not a celebration. It's a horror, actually. Uh, it's and horror. Sorry, my Kansas accent comes out when I say that, when I say <laughs> H-O-R. R-O-R, right? And uh, it's this, it's the moment when Christ dies on the Friday afternoon, and we have that darkness, you know, the, the the curtain ripping, the earthquake, the thunder, uh, that's tenebrae. Tenebrae is that darkness, and it's the imagination uh, or imagining what the world would be like without the grace of Christ. So part of, and I've always been fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by John staying with Jesus. I'm fascinated by Mary and Mary and Martha being there at the cross. That whole idea of the drama of the passion there on a Friday afternoon is that idea that where things really come together is not in just the, the cross where Jesus pulls out, or where Jesus holds his arms out and is nailed, but also to his head bowing and to his feet being nailed as well. In other words, we can't look at society as merely the arms outstretched. It also has to be the head and the legs as well of Christ. It has to be the full, the fullness of Christ in every way. And so Christian humanism argues that we really only understand our human dignity with the dignity of Christ dying. Now, of course, it, it comes with the absolute necessity that there must be the resurrection as well. But Paul tells us in Colossians that we know Christ is king, not when he is risen, but when he dies, right? It's at that moment where he reconciles all things through the cross to himself, all that ever has been and all that ever was. And, and that, you know, without getting too much into the depths of the theology of it, 
that just that absolutely fascinates me, Carolyn, that idea of that moment of Christ's death being that great moment where every question the Greeks ever asked in philosophy and every longing the humans have ever had or ever will have is really answered at that moment that Christ is crucified. Um, and I, I just I find that even at age 52 you know, and having thought about this so much of my life, I, I can't. I can't get over that. It's just something that my brain and my soul have settled on as a way of meditating about the mysteries of humanity and of the universe. And I feel that very deeply. Hmm. Now, you know, Christian humanism, it is an ism. So are we to understand Christian humanism as a, a system of thought? And what are the principles in this system, if it is one? Yeah, I, I'm always, of course, we use ism so often, and I, I would hesitate to say it's either an ideology or an ism. Right. I do think it's a way of thinking. Uh, my own understanding of ideology has been so dramatically shaped by Russell Kirk, who argued that it, always ideologies were false religions. So when you say it's an ism, and you're right, I mean, I'm, I titled the book, right? <laughs> the subtitle was Christian Humanism. You know, I can't get away from that. And I wish I could, Carolyn. I wish I could run away from the ism. Uh, but it's there, and there's no way to really run from it completely. So is it an ideology? No, I think of it more as an anti-ideology. But it is rooted, I think, very much in the incarnation of Christ. That is, it does try to understand fully the 33 years that Jesus had when he was both fully God and fully man. So there's something in that mystery, of course. In a way, God is... I mean, Christ is the second person of the Trinity, is not just the Son of God. He is the Son of Man, too, in some way. And when you were asking earlier about, well, is it left or is it right or is it somehow transcendent? I can't help but think of C.S. Lewis and that hideous strength and man versus anti-man and the head. You know, to me, that's the idea. It's this very Lewis idea of trying to understand the fullness of the human person. But we really can't understand our dignity, your dignity, my dignity, the dignity of my wife or my children or of my students. We can't understand that unless we understand the dignity of Christ, the dignity of his his birth and of his death and of his resurrection. So that's where that wholeness of the humanism comes from, that recognition of the incarnation. So I do think there are certain principles that we can't get away from when we're talking about Christian humanism. It's not enough to merely label God or to label Christ as the second person of the Trinity. I do think we have to delve a little bit deeper than that and not just think about the resurrected Christ, but think about the full Christ as fully man and fully God at the same time. Now, I've noticed that you have a love for writing biographies, and I I think really for humanizing so many ideas that drive our heritage. But in this book, you list so many of them from, you know, J.R.R. Tolkien to Walker Percy to Eric Vogelin. And really surprising to me, also Margaret Atwood um, is also briefly featured. So, (laughs) you know, what is it exactly that makes someone a Christian humanist? Yeah. How can all of these people be included in this Christian humanist tradition? Right. And they're not. So a lot of them are allies. Uh, Someone like Margaret Atwood, I think, especially in the way that she wrote The Handmaid's Tale, I think there are a lot of elements in it that speak very directly to our humanity Uh, in the same way that that Shakespeare wrote very directly to our humanity. And I, I think anybody who at some level understands 
that humanity is suffering and that there's also this glory and dignity to that suffering. That's what I'm interested in. And so I think that Atwood as a person is extremely problematic, but I think of her as an artist as fully, at least in alliance with the idea of trying to understand what the humanist part is, if not necessarily what the Christian part is. So I, I would agree. She's an odd choice. And I kind of threw her into the book, partly because I like her and I'm interested in her. She does fascinate me, but also because I didn't want the book to be totally predictable. I wanted there to be some Tom Bombadil figures, uh-huh. um, some figures who just kind of show up out of nowhere that don't totally make sense. So whether it worked or not, Carolyn, I'm not sure, but I did want to have a few enigmas in there as well. And, you know, I don't think Ronald Reagan, for example, would ever have called himself a Christian humanist or even known what that term was. Uh, I don't know if if people like Eric Vogelin would have saw themselves that way. In fact, I would say probably fairly clearly Vogelin did not towards the end of his life. But there are elements in the kinds of things that they're arguing, and especially in the way that each one of those was challenging totalitarianism and challenging the inhumanity of the Nazis and of the communists, that they do share things in common. And there are other people that I wish I would have included. Uh, I wish I would have had Jacques Maritain in there. I wish I would have had a chapter on Father Sirico. Uh, in fact, it's uh, in many ways, it was a talk that I heard Father Sirico give back in 1991 that really was a, a talk on Hayek and a talk on individualism that made me realize, at least for me personally, that the best way to kind of get at a lot of these topics was through biography. And I'm sure you can't be at Acton and not have heard Father Sirico's stories, his stories about the baking and his stories about his neighbors. They're so biographical and he makes the human person so real that that was, that was tangible for me when I first met him and I first heard those stories. And I wanted to, as a, a young libertarian, I wanted very much to be a Hayekian. I wanted to figure out how can I make Hayek real? And when I thought about methodological individualism, for me, the best way to do that was through biography. Let's actually look at the individual and try and understand how the individual understands humanity. So whether, again, whether I've been successful or not is an open question, but I've definitely dedicated my professional life to try and understand, uh, trying to understand the human person through biography. You mentioned several times in your book about how the Christian humanist tradition played a role in the Republic of Letters. Can you explain that for us? What exactly was the Republic of Letters and how does Christian humanism play a role in that? Yeah, the Republic of Letters was one of those things that a lot of different scholars talked about, especially in the 1940s and the 1950s. Basically, this idea of how do we keep Western civilization together, and not just the West. I mean, there clearly has to be something in Asian civilization, too, with Buddha and Confucius and with the Hindu writings. There has to be something there as as well that speaks to humanity. It may not be within the Judeo-Christian tradition, but it parallels it in some ways. Uh, Obviously, coming out of the Western tradition and being Christian, we would privilege the Christian even within the Judeo-Christian. But there has to be a recognition of these other ideas as well. And so the idea of a republic of letters was this belief that you could always continue the discussion Even with, say, Russian scholars behind the Red Curtain, you could still continue a discussion with them, no matter what our politicos might be doing, what Eisenhower might be doing in the White House or Khrushchev in the Kremlin. We still have this dialogue among various peoples. And it was especially important for scholars like Christopher Dawson, 
when they were thinking about the Reformation, you know, how easily Europe could have become divided between the Southern peoples who were Catholic and the Northern peoples who were Protestant. But no matter what, no matter how much maybe the Swedish king who was Lutheran might be fighting with the Austrian king or emperor who was Catholic, you still had people talking to one another. You still had Philip Melanchthon, one of the great Lutherans, still talking with Catholic scholars. And you had Erasmus debating with Luther. And they could have easily dismissed one another, but they engaged one another. And that's the idea of the Republic of Letters, that no matter how much our politics might become divided, we still talk to one another. Our poets can still talk to one another. Our philosophers can still talk to one another. And it's not at just any one moment. So when you took great books and great ideas at Grove City, you were talking to Socrates and Socrates was talking to you. And we were talking to all the people who came in between. And and the same thing is true, Carolyn. When you and I talk about Socrates right now, and this broadcast won't be for a few days, I assume, right? We're not live. We're recording this. We're, We're talking to those people who will be listening to this in a couple of days. And so the Republic of Letters is never specific to any one time. It is always a conversation of the dead and the living and the yet to be born. And and it waits. And so I imagine for my students, my seniors here at Hillsdale, and this is true everywhere across across the world, they don't get to graduate in any normal kind of way. And they've spent the last seven weeks at home. And how depressing for them. Yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And yet the kinds of decisions they make, the way that they respond, the way that they take the ideas that we've taught them, all of that matters. The fact that maybe they haven't talked about Socrates for four years, or it was three and a half years ago, still matters in some way with the way that they're dealing with this crisis and the way that their grandchildren will deal with whatever crisis comes about them. So the Republic of Letters is really an attempt to kind of create a dialogue, not only within time, but across time as well. And great people, like as I mentioned, Christopher Dawson, but others like T.S. Eliot, Flannery O'Connor, a lot of what she tried to do, they were all trying to engage and continue this idea of a republic of letters. Russell Kirk, not uh, someone who lived not too far from where you live now, uh, was one of the preeminent figures in trying to make a, a, a republic of letters. Acton University every summer is a perfect example of what the republic of letters is about in one moment, but also transcending all of that and trying to recognize we're not just talking to those who lived a thousand years ago, but we're talking to those who will live a thousand years from now. And maybe we're barely hanging on and maybe we're barely preserving civilization, but it doesn't matter if it can be revived a thousand years from now. It was all worth it. Now, it seems to me that your book is almost an attempt at passing down fragments of these conversations, at least, so readers' interests can be piqued and they can further, you know, dive into this and learn more about these conversations going on between philosophers and theologians. A- am I right in thinking that? Absolutely. I wanted to try and interconnect everybody from you know, Margaret Atwood, who's writing dystopian fiction, to Ronald Reagan who, of course, was fighting the Soviet Union. And then I mean, even my grandparents are in there. Um, you know, and that, that was fun to do, of course, to be able to, to kind of acknowledge them. But, you know, who would ever pick up a book and see a chapter on Wendell and Berzer, or Wendell and Baskell, my grandfather, and think, oh, of course, that's what this should be about, right? <laughs> you know, I, 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 he's, he's forgotten. 
Um, but of course, in my mind, he's not. I mean, he was the most important man I ever met. So it's important to me to carry on that legacy, even if most people have forgotten his name. I mean, and he's never going to be up there with Ronald Reagan, of course. But uh, in my mind, he is. Right? He carries that kind of weight. So I wanted to be able to, to speak to those different people and bring those different people together. Well, you um, solidify this idea, this Christian humanism into canons for your readers. Can you mention a few of those? Sure. So what I was trying to do, and I was very intentionally patterning that after Russell Kirk. So Russell Kirk had argued that there were six canons that conservatism held in common. And so I was trying to think, well, if that's true, and I I like that because this is a way of kind of avoiding the idea that we would just have one absolute set way of thinking. And I'm sure you've heard this. I I hear all the time conservatives try to outdo each other. I'm more conservative than that person, or that person's not really conservative. And and you see it especially, libertarians are especially bad about this, where they're constantly saying, that you know, I'm more libertarian than that person, or that person has just admitted they're not really libertarian because they've expressed this one thing. And I think Kirk, by giving six canons, was trying to explain that this is really more a way of thinking than it is an absolute reality. That is, you don't all have to agree. And if you did all agree, we would become inhumane in some way. We would start losing our individual dignity if we all agreed on exactly the same thing. So I didn't want to be exactly like Kirk, and I didn't want to have just six cannons, so I went for five. And I know that's that's cheesy. It's like it's the same reason I asked my wife to marry me on February twelfth rather than February fourteenth. Right? I mean, everybody would do it on February fourteenth, so I didn't want to be. <laughs> it's it's the it's the weird rebel contrarian in me. Um, so the same thing was here. I didn't want to do exactly what Kirk did, but you know, by doing five, it's probably just as silly as as not doing six. But anyway, I did five, and I I thought that these five were kind of fun. They were ways of just thinking about what does it mean to be a Christian humanist. And and for me, number one is by far the most important, and it is this recognition that there has to be a dignity to each and every person who has ever existed, whoever will exist. And that's hard for us in 2020. Uh, we tend to categorize, we tend to label and dismiss. And even, you know, and, and we all do that. You know, we think about someone who is not us and we keep kind of in our own imagination, our enemy, maybe someone over in Iran. We keep weighing them down with more and more images of corruption and these things that they are. And of course, when we really, if we really looked at the Iranian, even if that Iranian is absolutely our enemy, even if we looked at them with even the the slightest way that Christ would see them, we would have to admit that they live and breathe and exist because Christ allows them to live and breathe and exist. In other words, every, every person who exists anywhere, even our worst enemy, is here through the grace of God. And that's something that I think we often lose, and it's easy to lose. Uh, I think in some ways, our, our, the way that we're programmed biologically is to kind of think in terms of our group versus their group, but that's not what our theology teaches. Our theology really does teach that every single person who lives and breathes, you know, as, as Paul says in Acts 17, you know, we live and breathe and have our being in him. Um, we move and live and have our being, right? It's all there. And, and so everyone 
has that. And that to me is the most important thing. The second thing, and this goes back to when we started talking about this, Carolyn, the second thing is that probably the best form of education, and I I realize I'm biased about this being a liberal arts professor, but the best way to understand our place within the world is to be liberally educated. And that liberal education can take place in first grade or it can take place in college. It doesn't have to be reading the Crito. We can be liberally educated. I think when we realize that ideas transcend our very moment, I think at that moment we're kind of, we're liberated in, in the sense of the liberal arts. We're taught that knowledge is greater than just any one moment. So that was really important for me. And then the last three, I think, tie together in in certain ways. But we recognize, uh, for my third point at least, that while the human being is important, extremely important, point number one, uh, that dignity, we're also lower than God. And we have to recognize that, that God is higher than us and that we have been placed in this this kind of order of things. Uh, I do believe, and this is number four, that we have... We tie ourselves together through this republic of letters across time. And finally, uh, we acknowledge, and I think number five, and it's not number five because it's the least important, it's actually probably the most important, uh, but that we understand that there's a God and that God created us. And therefore, we are made somehow in his image. And, I, you know, for me, it was kind of a, a nice little package, all five things kind of interweaving and tying together one with the other. But I, I do think it's important that we recognize those things, again, not as some political program, but as a variety and a, a way of thinking. So, you know, your vision, Carolyn, and the way that you worship is going to be slightly different than the way that I worship. Uh, but that's even true. My wife has a slightly different way of worshiping than the way I worship. And part of that is simply that we're each unique manifestations of God's grace. And so we may each be proclaiming the truth, but we're doing it in different ways. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, that's part of that diversity where we don't want to be strict ideologues, but we want to allow the flourishing of the human person. Mm-hmm. Now, it seems to me also that maybe one of the main threads connecting many figures within this Christian humanist tradition that you name is um, this thread of the pursuit of truth in light of temporal and eternal realities. Am I, is, is that, would you say that's correct? Absolutely. And, you know, so we're trying to, and one of the things we can learn through a Republic of Letters, and frankly, just by talking with one another, we learn how important eternal things are, but recognizing that the moment does matter too. So our moment of conversation does matter, but it matters not just because you're Carolyn and I'm Brad, but because we're two human beings and we're engaging in a conversation that has been engaged in before and will be engaged in again. So our particular Brad and Carolyn has a certain flavor to it, but it also has a universal quality to it. And that I think is important to recognize both of those things, the moment as well as how the moment reflects the eternal. Now, I I do like to put faces, as do you, on ideas, like put some real flesh and um, bone behind it. You mentioned that you wrote about your grandparents in this tradition in your book. Right. How did your grandparents model this for you? Well, so I grew up in a, in a kind of an odd family, a pretty broken family, actually. So my father died when I was just two months old. I was the youngest of three kids. So really, my grandmother and my grandfather on my mother's side, I won't say they raised me. 
but they were always my models of everything. And they were incredibly good, dignified people. And I talk a little bit about this in the book, the kinds of things that they gave and sacrificed, especially in the Great Depression and World War II. You know, the stories I never got enough of, and, and they never bragged. They, they were the least conceited people I've ever met in my life. Uh, but they carried with them a certain air and a certain dignity. Ideas always mattered. Talking always mattered. Giving away always mattered. That is being charitable. Yeah, And again, they never showed off. It was never anything like that. It was just what you did. If the neighbor came over, it didn't matter what you were doing. You stopped what you were doing and you talked to your neighbor. Uh, and you always, you know, when you had a, a great garden and a great harvest, you shared it all with everybody. And you know, partly, I mean, there's a bit of showing off what, what kind of jam I made this year, but it wasn't that. It was meant to be this kind of, I mean, in their minds, it was, look at these great grapes that God gave us and look what I did with them through the art that God gave me. So cooking was not just about filling our stomachs. There was something deeply sacramental about a meal with them. And it, it was in everything, everything my grandmother touched, everything she baked, everything she told me, it was just always full of this. I, I can't put it in any other way. And I, I hope this doesn't sound cheesy, uh, but it, it just was holy. Everything was holy in the way. And it wasn't that she didn't have a problem. She could complain. And she, I mean, gosh, when she went on a rant, she went on a rant. <laughs> uh, but it, there was something beautiful about it as well. It was very human. And so my grandmother, I think, did so much, and my grandfather, too, so much that was so sacramental. And that really shaped me. Um, And I I will never say that I've looked up to it. I can't say that I've ever earned the kind of dignity or worth that I think that they did. But I I try so hard uh, to model that, you know, when I'm in the classroom or with my kids. And one of the things my grandparents taught me that I think is so important is that and, and this, I hope, is, is one of the themes of the book. And that is God makes us each differently. And that's a great thing. I mean, diversity, properly understood, is a beautiful thing if it's not politicized and it's not made ridiculous by rules. And But if you really recognize the diversity of you, Carolyn, and me, Brad, and my son, Nathaniel, and my wife, Deidre, you know, when you see the uniqueness of each person, that diversity, it's overwhelming. It's absolutely overwhelming to see that. And one of the things that my grandparents taught me was that I I was never meant to be a mini grandfather or a mini grandmother. I was meant to be me Uh, and, and to model myself maybe after them, but not pattern myself after them. And that there were things that I would do that they could never do. And there were things that they could do that I will never do. And that's okay. Right? These are good things. And so that's, you know, when I put in, for example, in the book, when I have stories of Ronald Reagan next to Margaret Atwood, I'm not suggesting they're the same people. I can't imagine two more different people. But they each, in their own way, model something that we all need to know. And that's the kind of thing that I was trying to get at. So when I have these chapters, you know, and I, I put them, I, I have a chapter on a horror novel, Shirley Jackson's Haunting. And then I go to my grandfather and my grandfather and my grandmother, and then I go to Ronald Reagan, and then I go to a science fiction novel after that. You know, it is weird. I mean, it's, it's totally weird. I, I freely admit that. And but entertaining. That, I Bradbury, <laughs> right? I mean, but, it, but that's also, that's the diversity of life. That's, 
you know, look at a classroom of students. That's really what a classroom looks like. You've got your Eric Vogelin and you've got your Margaret Atwood and you've got your Ronald Reagan and you've got your Carolyn Roberts and you've got, you know, they're all right there. And that, that's, that's what life looks like um, in all of its beauty, I think. And I, I think that's what we have to recognize. You know, and so I, I was mentioning right before we went on to the podcast, Carolyn, and, and we're both in a similar kind of situation, though I'm in a very different part of my life than you are. You know, I've got all of my kids home right now for the lockdown. And my kids range from age 21 to eight. And we've been together now for almost eight solid weeks. And during that entire time, there's only been one fight. My eight-year-old, my 11-year-old started wailing on each other Sunday morning of all mornings. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but it stopped and we haven't had another fight. We've all gotten along. I mean, it's just stunning. And it's only by the grace of God that we've all gotten along. But one thing that I recognize every day is even though we're all burzers, every one of us and all eight of us in that room are so different from one another. And what makes us get along is that we are different and that we also share things in common. Um, and that, that, you know, it's a little microcosm of, of humanity. So those are the kinds of things I'm really interested in. So you've been teaching this class on Christian humanism at Hillsdale for a long time, um, every other year since 2003, actually. That's right. So 17 years. Yeah. I would say that many students there at Hillsdale are studying Christian humanism um, almost inherently in their studies already through um, studying the humanities in the Judeo-Christian tradition in a way. So why do you teach a class on it? Why is it so important to you that your students understand this? Yeah, well, it's it's by the very much by the grace of my department chair, Mark Kaltoff, that he's allowed me and encouraged me to do this. Because clearly, I mean, it is an odd thing to be able to do. What I try to do, Carolyn, and I just taught it this spring, uh, obviously got interrupted. Um, and I was able to, to do the, the last half I, I just did as videos um, with my students. And what I was able to do with that in the class, so regardless of whether you know, Corona happened or not, what I did was I spent the entire first half of the semester, all of us, we read together, we read uh, a number of poems by T.S. Eliot. And in the second half of the semester, we basically focused on Russell Kirk. So the first half of the semester is Eliot. The second half of the semester is Russell Kirk. We also, we looked at Ray Bradbury. We looked at Walter Miller. We read Willa Cather. So there were a number of different things that I had them do. But part of what I was trying to do is to have them understand the concept of history, not just merely as the past up to the present, but a concept of time in which history is not just the past, but it's also the, the future as well. And we dealt a lot with the incarnation. So if Jesus really did come as fully man and fully God, which every Christian believes, if we did, if that really did happen, what are the implications for who and what we are? What does that mean for the way that we barter and truck with one another? What's it mean for the economy? What's it mean for our politics? What's it mean for the way we form our education, the way we form our schools? What does it mean about our neighborhoods? All of those things. So I, I look at the incarnation mostly through the four quartets of T.S. Eliot as not just yet another moment in history, just one thing after another, but really as the fulfillment of history. And again, getting back to, I think, your first question, you know, what is it about the cross 
Well, it's the cross, it's the crucifix, it's where Jesus died, that you have that horizontal, his arms spread with the vertical, his head bowed and his legs nailed, right, his feet nailed. It's all of it. It's not just one or the other. It's the horizontal and the vertical. And it's there where the divine meets the human, right? Not just in the incarnation, but in the death, and then, of course, with the resurrection. So it really is an attempt to try and understand history, not I wouldn't say in a kind of, I wouldn't say in a biblical way per se, though we looked very strongly at, at John, we looked at Colossians, we looked at Paul, but really more of just specifically an incarnational way, which of course is in the Bible, but I don't want to make it suggest, I don't want to make it sound like this was a, a biblical class. It was a class rooted in the teachings of the Bible, I, as I understand it through all my weaknesses, but it's it was still a very specific part of that, and that is that incarnational part of the New Testament, looking at that. And we did some Old Testament things as well, but really those things that hinted towards the incarnation as well. So that's what we were really trying to get at in this class, and that, you know, for 17 years, that's what we've been trying to do. So it's a lot of reading together. I love being read to, and I love reading out loud absolutely love it. It's one of my favorite things. I love it when my students read to me. Uh, and then we just talk about it. We just kind of enjoy it. You know, put the poetry, make it tangible, read little getting all of us together, take our time, think about it. And, and quite often, if I remember right, I might be remembering not exact, maybe I'm getting a couple classes mixed up, but I'm pretty sure that we read together little getting at least three times in the class. So we listened to Elliot read it. I read it, I think, and then the students read it. So it was one of it, it wasn't just a let's read it and talk about it. It was a kind of let's make it tangible and then walk around it, get inside of it, try and figure out what it means. And what does when, when Elliot tells us that time is here and now, you know, what does he mean? When he says England is here and now, history is always and always has been, you know, what does that mean? What's he trying to get at here? Uh, because clearly when I'm teaching, of course, like the Civil War, the American Civil War, yeah, we have a battle, and then we have a general die, and then we have another battle, and a general die. And you know, it's, it's linear, and it has to be. That, that's the normal way of teaching history. But what if we looked at history as not just one moment after another, but as a series of moments that reveal what is eternally true? That's, that's the kind of goal, and that's why it's in the history department to teach it that way. Well, I think that is such a great note to end on. If our listeners want to learn more about um, Christian humanism, about and read more from you and also buy this book, where can they go? Well, yeah, thanks, Carolyn. I mean, the best, you can either go to Angelico Press, or I think the easiest way is just to go to Amazon. Uh, they have it both paperback and hardback. There's not a Kindle version yet. I think the publisher likes to wait for about a year before a Kindle version comes out. Uh, but yeah, I, I think either the paperback or the hardback and Amazon has those readily available. So they've been, Amazon's been very good to work with actually about this. So really good. All right. Well, fantastic. Brad, thank you so much for joining me again. Oh, Carolyn, I, I love talking to you always. So thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Act In Line. Our podcast team has a lot of fun putting this show together for you. And really, at the end of the day, what matters most to our team is that we're covering stories and topics that matter most to you. We love hearing from you. So don't hesitate to reach out and let us know what you think of the show or let us know what you'd like to hear covered. You can email us at actinline at actin.org.